Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and defender of bread, talk to you about all things food and psychology. In today's episode, I'm breaking bread with Ryan Riley. Ryan is a food writer and stylist and founder of Life Kitchen, a charity he launched in memory of his mother, Krista, who died of cancer just over four years ago. About 50% of people who undertake chemotherapy experience changes in taste that can take away their pleasure in eating, and Life Kitchen designs recipes to help guests enjoy food again. In this episode, Ryan describes how he set up Life Kitchen and tells me what his mum would have thought of the endeavour, and he shares some very touching anecdotes about his close relationship with his best friend, Kimberly. A little heads up, the room was a little bit small, so in places it's a teeny bit echoey on the audio, but it's mostly fine, so you shouldn't really have any problems, just wanted to give you some forewarning. And with that said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ryan Riley. Let's get ourselves comfortable. Yep. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. Hello. Thanks. Okay, welcome and thank you for joining me on the Food Insight podcast. Um, for the sake of the audience, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Ryan Riley. I'm 25. I'm a food writer and stylist and the founder of Life Kitchen. Okay, okay, so there's a lot of us to get into there. Um, but as ever, on the Food Insight podcast, when we do these breaking bread episodes, we always start out with a meaningful food for the guests. So could you introduce your meaningful food and tell us why it's so important to you? Yeah, today I brought along some Raw's Harissa and it wasn't my first choice. But what a, was your first choice? Well, it was quite an intense choice, actually, from my childhood, a thing called panacotis. You probably wouldn't have heard of it. The hairy bikers have a recipe and they call it panhaggity. And I guess it's probably okay, I've heard of similar to Lancashire Hopper, but it's a very northeast version. And I was going to make that and bring that, but it's been a heat wave in London. And I just thought, actually, let's focus on my newest food memory, something that means a lot to me. And the Rose Harissa links in very nicely. We use it at our life kitchen classes and it's had a wonderful response um, to some people who couldn't taste very much. And it's been very, uh, yeah, a very eye-opening experience for such a simple ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, maybe we should start with what Life Kitchen is. Absolutely. Uh, just so that people know what we're talking about and have a good reference. So what is the Life Kitchen? It is um, a set of free cookery classes that run across the UK for people living with cancer. Um, I founded them in memory of my mother, Krista, who passed away from small cell lung cancer four years ago. And partly what these classes are is when you're going through chemotherapy or radiotherapy, you can lose your sense of taste as a side effect of the treatment. 
food. So that obviously makes eating a miserable time. And as a food writer and a food stylist and someone so interested in food, um, I wanted to give back. And I was like, how do I find this level this level of enjoyment for people again, give them something. And I started out as one little class and it snowballed and spiraled and here I am running them across the country with some incredible people behind it. Have you always been interested in food or was that something that came a bit later for you? Absolutely came a bit later. I couldn't cook at all till after my mother's death, really. Um, I could cook many of the things that she cooked and she was a brilliant cook of about five or six dishes. Mm -hmm. The rest were freezer and then the other ones weren't so good. So was the dish that you would have bought one of yeah, dishes. yeah, that it was very northern hardy food actually. Like another one would have been like a ham and leek broth. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean these are with dumplings. Mm-hmm. I mean these are northern good comfort classic. And that's probably although I say I couldn't cook, it's probably where I get my ideal flavours from. And you know, the comfort. I think comfort is flavour. And I've always been you can probably tell me you know, there's something really psychologically wrong with me here. But I always preferred hot food to cold food and I can't eat hot food if it's cold okay, I, okay so, you, so if a meal comes to you and it's cold yeah I wouldn't I can eat it but I wouldn't enjoy it for example if I get like a pasty from Greg's or something mm-hmm. and it's not warm I, I just I, even when I was a child I would never eat it mm. and so I prefer hot food hot and cold food cold it's one of the things that my friends would say as a food writer now how do I balance life <laughs> and I guess I don't know but um yeah. It, it, does it make kind of contrasting dishes quite difficult for you? No, no, I enjoy those hugely. It's literally just if things are hot, they should be hot. And if things are cold, they should be cold. Put them together, I'm fine. I can have, you know, chili con coin with rice, and the rice can be cold. Like, I don't know, I'm just strange. So is that is that a kind of, is it a flavour thing? Or I think it's a, a kind of experience It's, it's both. Thing. It's absolutely both. Flavour, for me, I think is brought out the, the most when things are hot or warm not really hot because sometimes hot can black like make the flavor like disappear mm. but you know when things are at the right temperature which is I suppose what I'm trying to promote here is that I think you get the most out of it um but also it's experience I've always been about comfort and and like I think warm food is more and en- en- enveloping what's the word yeah, and fellow, yeah, anyway, yeah. it's nicer. It's definitely nicer. And I, I've just always stood by that in the way that I do things. And I think now, all these years later, of just constantly living with that has brought me to a point where food and flavour and the power of flavour and the power of comfort to me is mm-hmm. so integral to who I am. It kind of spills over nicely into yeah. Life Kitchen. I think, obviously, there, there has to be something in that, right? Because there's a reason that comfort food isn't a plate of salad. Like as much as you might love salad, and you know you could dig vegetables and you could be in there, you're, you're, no one is ever turning to a plate of salad or some jelly for <laughs> for comfort. Yeah. You know, it's always something. It's invariably something warm, whether that is mashed potatoes or macaroni cheese or pudding and custard. You know that it's there is something about that the physical warmth and actually I think you know, there is something psychological about that if you want to stick with some nerdiness for me for one moment <laughs> of course so actually in our evolutionary history emotions developed afterwards because emotions are abstract emotions are kind of conceptual things that don't really have real world connections but are obviously we evolved in in very physical environments so we evolved evolved to have kind of hot cold sensations and you know physical touch sensations and when we developed language 
and then from language, emotion, mm-hmm. where people kind of describe emotion, those concepts had to piggyback on neural networks that were already present. So that's why we describe people as cold mm-hmm. or they're a warm person. And that gives a sense of actually our emotional connection to them, whether they were kind of reserved and, and difficult to connect with or whether they were warm and inviting and that sort of thing. So I suspect from that that there is something about you know the physical warmth of something and an emotional warmth that gets connected to it for us psychologically. And I wonder if that's why I only like warm, nice people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, right? Yeah. Because it's about a physical thing. And and I suppose it's about um, familiarity. If that's now all I've ever really known, and I'm only going to like warm people. I mean, I do like some cold food. I mean, trust me, I really do. But like I said, it's about get them right. Hot food is hot, cold food is cold. Yes, you can mix them together and have some very brilliant dishes. But, you know, just just put my point out there. Yeah, no, that's that's, It's all about your own personal experience, and that's really it's really interesting, right? But we did digress from (laughs) actually talking about Life Kitchen. So Life Kitchen, you said, was set up in memory of your mother who died four years ago yeah at 47 okay so really young yeah really young um but something something that i sort of was coming to terms with um even when she was i mean she she now would have been 50 52 this year and i think for me so many people always say to me oh she was so young at 47 well my best friend kimberly she lost her mother at 50 when she when kimberly was 15 and her mother was even younger Mm. and i just think you know cancer just doesn't doesn't care if you're young or old if you've got a good diet or a bad diet in you know in its own way you know people can go my nan smokes like 40 a day she's living at 80 whatever Mm -hmm. my mother gave up when i was born and died of lung cancer 20 years later Mm -hmm. i mean i think there there are obviously things in this world that contribute and contribute to it but I just find it like it's such a thing that just affects everyone. Yeah. I lost four or five people with cancer before I was 20 years old. So my mother, my granddad, my uncle, my kind of auntie, like family auntie, sure. and then someone else as well. So that's before I was even 20 years wow. old. And I think um, part of what I, did, what I was going to do is I knew somehow I was going to do something in this world for good in some way, whether it was for good of society or whether it was for good for myself and my family with a business or something. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Life Kitchen was going to be it. But here I am, and it's, yeah, it's going really well, and I feel like we're, 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 we've gone everywhere with this conversation again. <laughs> so tell me, what do you want to ask? No, it was, because um, it, it's fine. This is, it's, we, we always come back to where we're meant to be. So I think it's worth, though, describing to listeners what Life Kitchen is and probably what it isn't as well. Because mm-hmm. I think it's easy to get confused with um, when we're talking about food or diet and cancer for people to make certain assumptions. Um, and so it's probably good to clarify what you what you stand for and what you don't stand for. Yeah, well, Life Kitchen is a free cooking class for people living with cancer focused on taste and flavour. So you're not suggesting that the food that you're promoting or the foods that you cook on your classes will help with cancer treatment or prevent cancer or in any way affect cancer course no in no way we are what we're seeing is if you can't taste and can't enjoy food during this time let's work out some recipes so you can find out some enjoyment and flavor and there is some science behind it there is some luck behind it there is individual preference behind it but you know at the very core of what we're doing is um eating is such a sociable and enjoyable thing and something that is now integral to our societal lives and if you can't enjoy food like my mother couldn't 
then where where do you in the darkest time of your life are you going to find the enjoyment if everything that we do is going to the pub or going to the restaurant or going out for dinner or going into a park for a picnic if everything that we do as a society revolves in some aspect around eating and drinking if you can't enjoy that process then where during the darkest time of your life do you find that enjoyment you can't and what Life Kitchen tries to do is tries to give a little bit of enjoyment during that time. Find, I always say, finds a bit of light and a little bit of darkness, and we put the flavour back on the menu for people living with cancer. And you know, we've had some great success stories. Um, we've had people who said, came along to the class, this just hasn't worked for me at all. And they're the people that we find the most interesting because they're the people that we're trying to learn from and trying to find out why um, it worked for Susan and not for Janet. Mm. Um, and I think that's really key to what Life Kitchen is now and where we're going in the future. And mm-hmm. where it's all about taste and flavour, backed by science and a bit of luck. I have two questions. One is, do you know what? Do you know why it is that the cancer treatment interferes with taste? You know? There's two theories, and I actually only know one of them off the top <laughs> of my head. And that's that the cancer drug seeps into your saliva... Okay. And then changes the way that we taste in that. And there's another one. And actually, I looked these up when I was talking to the likes of Macmillan and Cancer Research about why this happens. Mm. Um, and the other one that's really escaped my mind at this point. But no one's entirely sure, okay. really. Um, it's just sort of a side effect. Like when you take an antibiotic and sometimes you, sure. or, you know, you could get a rash from it or whatever. Yeah. And this is just one of those awful side effects that really affects people. And it can affect people through not just through the treatment but till after I've spoken to people who a year after taking finishing the chemotherapy it's still affecting them mm. and I think obviously I mean you're talking to the choir here like, um, that food is so central to our daily lives and also our sense of pleasure and also to our sense of kind of connection to others you know that all of my like, meetups with friends take place over food (laughs) that's that's where we get together and and so much of what i talk about on the podcast um and on my on my instagram account is about how food is used all over the world in order to bring people together in order to learn more about other people in order to just gain some pleasure from life because one of the things that obviously I find quite difficult is when people talk about food being only functional and that it is just there to provide nutrients so why should we bother caring about how pleasurable it is and and to an extreme where some people think that food shouldn't be pleasurable and they feel guilty if they enjoy the food that they eat and I think that's really terrible actually Mm. Yeah, there's two sets. And actually, I have a little bit of that in my family. Not to that extent, my dad doesn't really care about food. It's mm-hmm. more about fuel for him. Mm-hmm. Not in a way that he'll ever judge anyone eating. He just doesn't really, he doesn't really like salt. He had his first martini at 60, about like someone last year. I mean, he's never been the adventurous type. And then there's me, who is, you know, a food writer and, um, you know, running these classes. He's tried, or he's came to every single one of my classes travels around the country hundreds of miles wherever it is and he tries the dishes and he's had salmon for the first time like all of these things and I think you know I mean that's a different type to what you're talking mm. about but like for him mm. food really is fuel and now at 60 he's discovering the joy of food mm. and I think there's something beautiful in that it's a byproduct of the life kitchen classes I mean didn't think that was going to happen but mostly you know what life kitchen does is help put the, the flavour back and the money for people who already enjoyed food mm-hmm. and part of I think what we have a national problem with is that 
so many people, it's quite controversial, (laughs) that people think they can cook, then they get ill, and the food that they were cooking before wasn't very good. So if with a now-impaired sense of taste, the food that they were cooking that already wasn't that flavourful is now even less flavourful because they've got that impaired sense of eating. So I've had people come along to the... I mean, I'm not the best cook in the world. You know, there's far better chefs and cooks and writers out there. But what I do understand is the base of flavour and how to get nice... how to make nice food. And if you can do that, you're 99% of the battle. Mm. And, you know, what I've had people come along to the classes and say to me... I can cook, so I'm really looking forward to this. And then I take them to a couple of really basic techniques um, and how to layer flavours in a dish. And then they're like, wow, I couldn't cook at all, actually. This is completely different. So where do you think, the people that say, oh, I can cook, what what are they thinking of? What do they see as cooking versus what they experience when they come to a class? It depends what your definition of cooking is. Is it jazzing up something, some quinoa from a cupboard? Is it jazzing up a ready meal? Mm-hmm. Or buying in one part of it and cooking your, the rice fresh? You know, there is a lot. I see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I also still see a lot of the food that we eat rooted in the quite traditional meat to veg side of things. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm from the Northeast, uh, you know, it's not a hugely... meat and veg. <laughs> yeah, basically. The the, and it's not a hugely exciting food scene there. There are people breaking through and doing really brilliant... Re- there's some really brilliant restaurants there, but I mean, you know, I'm privileged. I live in London. I'm around this diverse food scene. I've, I've been lucky enough to travel quite a bit, um, well, quite a small amount of the world, if you put it in comparison to how big it is. Um... <laughs> And yeah, I just, we have this diverse choice here and we also have this huge, huge amount of media that pushes on what food should be, all of these brilliant Mm -hmm. food books. We live in this like bubble of the food world here and then I go home and I'm doing a Rose Harissa dish and everyone's a bit blown away by what this is. And that's not to be patronising, you know, but we live in this completely different um microcosm I guess of mm. of what food can be so when I take my classes around the country to different areas mm. I do see different results and attitudes towards food and in itself that is fascinating and it's also going to help to form part of the research that we hope to do to forward um, what we know about cancer and food in terms of flavour mm-hmm. and in terms of enjoyment but part of the battle that we're fighting is just get people to layer flavour, caramelise. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't know how to caramelise things. And where do you get flavour in meat if you're not giving it the Maillard reaction, which is a fancy way of saying, well, caramelisation and Maillard are technically different things. But if we're talking in a general sense, yeah. Yeah. you know, if you want to get the caramelisation on vegetables, which gives the flavour, if you're mm-hmm. roasting a cauliflower at the highest heat and bringing out those natural sugars, mm-hmm. you're going to get a much nicer taste than just boiling it for three minutes on the hob. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think part of what we're trying to teach people is the layering of flavour. If you're looking at everything that we're trying to achieve in Life Kitchen, it's how to get the most out of your food in terms of taste and flavour. So if you're doing every element you can, if you're getting the base flavours right and you're caramelising properly, if you're adding things that stimulate nerves and um, stimulate saliva... Ginger and chilies and things. I'll tell you all about that in a minute. Um, (laughs) But if you're building all of these layers and if you're presenting it nicely on a plate, there is no denying that we we look at things first and we judge them and if they smell good and the way that they visually appeal to us, that adds to our eating experience. So what I try to teach them as my skills as a food stylist, and again, not the best food food stylist in the world, but I can make things look pretty um 
you really want to give everyone if you can give them all those elements then they've got a better chance of enjoying everything on that plate you know and I think there's nothing wrong with not knowing all of those elements but if you can and they're very simple elements if you can put them all together and get the most out of it then we've sort of achieved a mini goal Mm. Um, so if I can quickly talk about what gives you those sensations it's like a life kitchen class all over again (laughs) Um, you know when I first started the life kitchen I wrote the recipes before I before I looked for any of the research because I wanted to know what I could put forward as a food writer I wanted to know what I do at this point um, with my skills what can I bring to it I thought well obviously you want powerful flavours you know I'm not going to be coming in making quinoa because there's barely tastes of anything. Yes, it's a good carrier of flavour. And we've used that concept in the likes of our um, caramelised mushrooms with lentils and gremolata. So this dish is focused on umami. Mm-hmm. Um, so umami is the fifth taste. Um, it is not very well-known one. I go around the country talking at the classes and 99% of people have never heard of it. Um, and that's understandable. I mean, we're used to salt, sour, sweet, and bitter, but umami is savoury. It's the intense savouriness in mushrooms or soy sauce. And what's so brilliant about umami is it stimulates all of your other taste receptors. So if you've got an altered sense of eating, an impaired sense of taste, if you can boost not only the umami receptor, but the sweet, the sour, the salty, and the bitter, then you've got more chance of picking up those elements from that dish. And then the great, there's an amazing thing called synergistic umami. And um, I know all this because of a guy called Professor Barry Smith, who's a trustee of the charity and a world leader in the taste and the senses. I mean, I would never have come up with any of this on my own. It would have been famous like, this tastes good. Enjoy. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to sort of seek out some good people. Um, but where Barry and I, we were talking about this, and you have a thing called synergistic umami. And I like to describe it in the classes as super umami, because okay. it's a bit easier for people to remember. And myself, because sometimes I'm standing there like, um, what is it? What is it? What is it? Comes together, it comes together. <laughs> uh, one plus one is what? <laughs> um, so synergistic umami is basically one plus one equals eight. So if you've got, if, you know, mushrooms is, is one mm-hmm. and porcini mushroom stock is one, mm-hmm. put those together, you get super umami. So we're talking about umami plus umami equals super tasty umami. So we, we developed that into a dish. So we looked at lentils, and we looked at those as a carrier of flavour. So we looked at um, rehydrating some porcini mushrooms in hot water, mm-hmm. soaking the lentils and cooking the lentils in the porcini mushroom stock, frying off the mushrooms to a really high point of caramelization, almost burned. And when they're super hot, hit them with lots of lemon juice so they absorb that zingy, fresh lemon flavour. So Because you don't want too much umami, because then it gets a bit... Um, muddy and like quite dark in flavour and what you, you actually want from that is um, all that beautiful savoury um, um, umaminess but then you want to hit it with the lemon to lift the flavours and then we've also got a gremolata which is raw parsley lemon zest and garlic chopped really finely so you've got those beautiful rich um, umami flavours with that freshness mm. um, and we found that this dish really 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 hits home with people one a lot of people don't cook with lentils they're really good for you they've got lots of um, good nutrition nutritional elements they've got fibre exactly I'm always banging on about fibre well, you know, it's sick of hearing me talk about fibre <laughs> fibre is also a huge issue in cancer I mean you know um, the treatment can give you loads of internal problems um and fibre is really good for that. And partly, I mean, I'm no expert in nutrition. And what, what I try to do is look at balanced food from a flavour perspective. 
Um, and I'll just happily go with that because what we're saying is about taste and flavour. Mm-hmm. Get your nutrition advice from whoever you want. But um, if you want to... From registered nutritionists or dietitians or, or cancer dietitians. <laughs> like I said. <laughs> um, but if you want to get flavour and you want to look at the, the stuff that we're doing, in, in you know... To, to, to address this issue then I think you know, we can look at this, the foods and the recipes and the testimonials we've had I mean I set out this with a, a little goal to do something in memory of my mother and here I am registering as a full blown bloody charity with Sue Perkins as the patron Nigella Lawson is a brilliant support of mine and I mean half the food world though brilliant supports of mine and I couldn't be more grateful but I mean I'm learning along this the way as well I mean I'm definitely not an expert and actually the other day I was billed as an expert and celebrity chef and I wondered where that came from <laughs> I was like I appreciate the kudos but I mean I'm not either of those um, what I am is is learning along the, along the way with, with everybody else and part of what Barry and I want to do is we want to create citizen science so we want to use our classes around the country and the people in them to dictate a big wide group of statistics that say this works for them this doesn't this does this doesn't and then find the common threads put those together and there will be a common thread amongst this sort of set of people with cancer of food and flavour and how and what recipes work for them so is that what you meant when you said uh, the research element of yeah. Life Kitchen? So you're you're looking to try to understand the relationships between what different types of cancers or different types of treatments? Just the way that the food is picked up on the tongue and okay. the, the way that the treatment affects them. So if someone has um, more chemotherapy or more radiotherapy or... I mean, you should ask Barry about this. I mean, I'm useless. But part of what, what we do is part of why Barry is so brilliant is he can help collate that data of what works for these people, what works for these people, and then I can turn that into recipes and ingredients. And once something is broken down, because I don't understand science. I mean, I was in the top set at school, and then I think I failed. But point, what I'm, part of what I'm saying is, if we can get it broken down into simple things like ingredients and techniques, then it can be there for everyone. It can be easy, if you're living with cancer, to, to get flavour, because we know this ingredient works with this technique. And this flavouring, you know, and you get that out of it. And if we can break it down to that simple, so it's not science, it's actually just food. And most people understand food, mm. you know, from, from the very basic level. If we can break it down to that, then it could be a really revolutionary way of approaching eating while living with cancer. It strikes me that it would have other applications as well. I mean, if we're talking about, because certainly one of the things that I'm aware of, of my focus on the brain is how losing your, your sense of taste or losing your sense of smell can be an early indicator of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And that's certainly something that kind of neurologists will look out for. There might be different things happening there in terms of, is it about cancer treatment? Is it about effects on the brain or is it about damage to the brain in certain areas? But perhaps there could be applications for other people who lose their sense of taste or have impaired taste through some sort of illness. Yeah, there's, t- there's lots of applications in, the, in, in this because there's old age. As you know, your nan often says, it doesn't taste like it did mm-hmm. back in my day. And why is that? Why, that's the loss of sense of smell, which again is an indicator of, um, no, it's an indicator, but when you lose your sense of smell, um, it affects how you taste things because most of what we eat is smell. Um, and there's a thing called like head injuries. There's actually a name for it. Is it agusia? Agnosia. Yeah, since, like when you lose your sense of taste, there's an actual name for it. And, and there's lots of people who've reached out to me who, who know far more about it than, than me. And they've, they've said, this is not just a cancer problem. Mm. This is all of these other problems. And again, like 
there's not that many people doing stuff out there. And what Life Kitchen is doing is it's helping to find these people and say, this is what we're doing to help. This is how we can create recipes. This is how we create foods. Help us make it work. If it does, great. If it does, nothing lost. But we've already had some brilliant success stories from it. And actually, just this weekend, um, I found a couple of people in Prague who are doing similar things. So I'm quite excited to see what we can do worldwide about this and collaborate with other people. Because there's you know, I get told a lot, am I the first person out there doing that? And I've never claimed to be, and never, I don't think I am, but what I am is the first person who managed to bring it to, like, prominence amongst yeah, people. How did you do that? Because I don't you know. seem to have kind of sprouted out of kind of nowhere. Working with people from River Cottage, having endorsements from Nigella, having, working with Jamie and, and, and Sue Perkins, who I love <laughs> as one of the, the patrons, is an extraordinary accomplishment in what feels, certainly for me as an outsider, to be a very small amount of time. So how have you done that? Um... Completely by accident, I guess. Um, so the way I launched Live Kitchen, it was it was February twenty seventeen, um, as an idea. And actually, I I, I was sort of getting myself in trouble because I just tell people the truth. Um, I, my boyfriend called me, said I'm going to be late because I'm just buying this homeless guy a sandwich. And I thought, well, he's doing something good. And I had this idea that I wanted to give back. And I'd been thinking and thinking and thinking. And just that moment that he called me, this inspired me to put that idea out there. I just thought, okay, my boyfriend's doing something good. Why can't I do something nice? And I thought, well, I've been thinking about this cooking class for people living with cancer. So I'll tweet it. And I tweeted it. And 200, 300 retweets later. What was the tweet? What I just literally said, I, I want to do a cooking class for people living with cancer. I think at those times, the statistics I saw was 50% of people living with cancer experience this taste thing. And I just found that online. And I was like, that's really intriguing. And I was like, well, I was so confident that I could give flavor back to people that, yeah. So I tweeted saying, I want to give flavor back. I want to put flavor back in the menu. Um, for this one cookery class, people living with cancer, it affects like 50% of people. So maybe could anyone help me with a venue? Something really simple. If you look back about yeah, you'll find it. it probably says something much more sinister. Um, and yeah, 200 retweets later, I was, um, yeah, I had amazing backing. And I knew Nigella's home economist very loosely through the food world. And I just sent it to her and I said, would you show Nigella this and see if she wants to, you know, can offer any advice, um, you know, with her husband and the sort of her, her many sort of people that have been affected by that in her life. And yeah, then she followed me on Instagram and then. You know, from there I ended up on Radio 4, Today Programme, you know, 10 million people talking about it. And when you get in front of that audience and you see the response, I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. But sometimes in life you just got to go for it. And that's why I've took a year to get from, you know, the idea to what we do now. And... Yeah, I launched it, raised a little bit of money, did a bit of research, life got in the way, sort of paused for a little while, having to get a job and pay the bills. And then I managed to firm up a date with River Cottage to launch the first ever class. So then I found Professor Barry Smith, I took him my recipes, he said this works because of this, the umami because of the synergistic, and a lot of other things that I'll go into shortly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then I literally, so I went to the first class, armed with all this knowledge, Sue Perkins on my arm, who found me on Twitter. She saw the thing on Twitter and said, if you ever need a specky-eyed twonk, were her words, <laughs> to help. Um, 
And I messaged back saying, yeah, I mean, love to. And, you know, suddenly I had a support from Nigella, a support from the Superkins, and then the likes of Jay Rayner and Nigel Slater, um, Jamie Oliver. Sue actually called Jamie and said, we need, we want to do a class in London. Can you help? And he said, yeah, he said, he's my cuckoo school. Enjoy. Um, so I couldn't be more grateful for that. And then, yeah. So to answer your question, it just all snowballed, happened. People came out. People came on board, and it's just been a really brilliant, positive, uplifting thing that I think everyone's affected by cancer. Yeah, and I all think... of the people who are behind me really are in food, and they understand the implications of not if you can't taste things, well, what's the point in life? Yeah, I think you absolutely. Oh, there's so many things to say. I think yes, the, in terms of the traction you got from that first tweet, I think cancer is so pervasive in our kind of cultural knowledge. People are so aware of it. People, so many people have been touched by it either through their friends and family or, or through their own personal experience people you know we have the race for lives and the the Macmillan uh, coffee mornings and, and all of this sort of stuff so I think it's it's something that's very front of mind for a lot of people and, and similarly we're all food obsessed mm-hmm. yeah. all of us yeah. <laughs> whether you're you consider yourself a gourmand or whether you consider yourself someone who is a meal prepper in order to fuel, fuel your workouts you're still kind of obsessed no you are with I food. mean well, you're devoting <laughs> that much time to Tupperware and you've really got to be there's a lot of love so I think yes it's a kind of bringing together of those of two massive issues actually for people but i I just want to kind of challenge you on one thing hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In terms of, you kind of said, oh, well, I don't really know. Uh, I don't know what I was going to say or, or how I was going to do it. But actually, sitting across from you, having only really just met you, you are incredibly, or you come across as very confident. Is that something you, uh, A, do you agree? <laughs> but is that something you feel 
is is very natural because it takes in order to get these sorts of things off the ground you need to be able to be the kind of person who generates momentum so have you always been a very confident or outgoing person or is that something that's come along a bit later I don't even think I am that confident what I can do is go on TV and talk about it or go on the radio or sit across from you now but what I couldn't do before I got here I was sitting outside of your offices um, eating my, my stuff from from a, a well known brand um, and there was lots of people sitting in the thing and I just couldn't bring myself to sit near them because there was such a large group of people so I went to the side of it and sat where there was only five or six people and that for me doesn't scream of confidence if I was confident I'd go sit down so maybe you can unravel all this for me so why didn't you why didn't you go and sit with a group what was I just found that there was too many people for me it just felt like weird to eat in front of people I've always had a thing I actually picked this up from my best friend Kimberly when she was younger couldn't eat in front of people like large groups of people obviously our friends our family people Mm -hmm. she was comfortable with and I think I just sort of copied her in a, in a weird way from a young, impressionable age. Because we lived together from 15 after Kimberly's mother died from cancer. She and moved she, in. She had to move into a hostel. And I was refusing to let her live by herself. So I moved in um, on my wage from McDonald's thinking I could support us both. I've always been such a genius, obviously. Because that was so never going to You idea. moved out of home or she yeah, moved in? I moved out of home to look after her in a hostel. I wasn't actually meant to live there. So I had to climb through a window to get in. Um, because there was sort of... It's hostel of staff on site and I, and I've always had this so me and Kimberly have had this sort of like really amazing friendship since we were two years old and she's now the culinary director of Life Kitchen and a head chef in London and um, you know I couldn't have done this with so I might sat, sit here and say it was all my accomplishment but it wasn't there's lots of amazing people behind it and like going back to what you were saying about confidence um, for some reason I can get up and go on TV or present in a class to 24 mm. people I've never met I think it's interesting that there's there's two sides of it yeah that there's two sides of it I mean Maybe I'm just really narcissistic, but also humble at the same time. <laughs> and one just plays into the other. Well, I, maybe we shouldn't discount that, right? Because I think I think narcissism gets a lot of, of, of bad press. I think you have to be slightly narcissistic in something to believe you can do something. So I guess my boyfriend would say that that I, I am narcissistic because I believe that I could get Life Kitchen. And I do discount a lot of other people's ideas about how I should run it. Uh, but partly for me, that is about... This is my mother that I founded it in memory of. And I'm using that pain and those memories and that passion to fuel it. And when someone else who's not involved in it comes and says, you should do it this way, I find that quite hard. Because I suppose this is me delivering my version of what I think it should be. Um, And he's probably right, actually. (laughs) I should listen to more people um, and do things a slightly different way. But, I mean, it's worked out so far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it will get to. Well, I suppose I was interested in whether your parents were very encouraging of you as a kid. Um, Let's address that one first. Okay. So, my mother, it's quite funny, if she saw me doing this now, she would be appalled that I'd put everything on the line to run something so unstable. My dad was a musician, always a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, he even now encourages me to do this, comes to every class, drives across the country if I need something. He's so encouraging. My mother, when I was younger, made me go to business school um, because she wanted me to have a stable job that made some income. Because from 11, I was an entrepreneur. I ran a website where people could um, host their own websites on my servers in my bedroom in Sunderland. Um, I ran the school tuck shop, which was extremely successful with thousands of pounds month so much that the teachers were stealing from it <laughs> like the produce like a couple of bags of crisps I'd find them with their arm in the box at break time 
you know, great example, guys. Um, so I've always had this passion to do something. Um, so you've got previous, like this isn't, because that, that was a thing, like, it felt like Life Kitchen had just jumped out of nowhere, but oh, actually, yeah, but I've, I've tried and failed a thousand things. Did I think I would end up in the voluntary sector? No. Did I think I would end up in something that wasn't purely for for profit, for, for you know my own gain and my family's gain? No. Am I really happy that it's ended up in this way? Absolutely. Because for me, I think this is the one thing I've done in my life that feels really genuine and feels like for a purpose. And actually when you get that and it begins to work, it's in sense for me. It's a, it's a part of my healing process. It's part of you know, my, my family's healing process. So for, for one where I was maybe trying to do something that was entirely driven by commerciality in like the, the street food businesses that I had, um, even though I've never been one for profit, even when I was younger, I used to tell my dad, I used to be like, I want to run a business, but I don't want to be like a greedy corporate. I want to do something that's good for the world and better for people. I, I always thought, why do you pay people minimum wage? Why can't that company make 10 million pound less profit and pay them people two pounds more an hour? Even when I was like 15, this is what I was thinking. Um, so maybe I was always going to end up in this sort of like things were kind of leading you towards a a particular place in the world I think we need about seven more hours to digest this but uh, (laughs) yeah basically I've ended up in this I'm really proud of it Um, and yeah my my dad was very supportive my mother would be extremely anxious about the whole thing until I've got an actual salary and like an office and something tangible she she would have liked tangible results (laughs) whereas my dad just believes in it and he's actually the director of the social enterprise side of the charity I needed someone who could sort of steer it forward with the clear vision mm-hmm. so Kimberly and my dad are co-joint directors of the Life Kitchen um, Community Interest Company which helps to forward our goals by making money so we're going to bring out a range of products um, roasted garlic oil chilli oils things that are powerfully flavoured um, for a good price that raise money for Life Kitchen Fantastic. Um, you touched on something that I I think is so important and which I worry is declining or less thought about now which is purpose yeah and i think particularly for millennials and below like the younger generation that that i think it's much more difficult to to think about purpose what am i doing why am i here am i allowed to define a purpose for myself or do i have to wait for a purpose to be given to me Mm -hmm. by someone else or something else um and i think I worry, I think, that there's a bit of a crisis of meaning for a lot of people. And and it strikes me that with Life Kitchen, and I think this is this is one of the difficult things about about loss and grief. And I've done a podcast about grief and loss and, and what it takes to emerge from it in a healthy way. And one of the things that I think people really struggle with, with loss, is when it feels meaningless or when it just feels like, you're just in pain for no reason. Yeah. And what it feels like for me, and I, and I wonder, sort of as a psychologist, I wonder whether this is part of the, the momentum and the drive that you have, is that you have taken something so painful and made it meaningful. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree that I have done that. Did, didn't know I was doing that. <laughs> and... You know, I think there's an element of luck there is to it. Um, There's an element of everyone, this is a problem that is affecting a lot of people and not that many other people are talking about. There's an element of, I happen to be at the right place at the right time with a lot of good people in the industry. Um, 
you know, I mean, I, I've known people in the food world and I've been in it working for magazines and going to events. And you know what this world is like. It, it can be really fancy and flash and everyone has their own agenda and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I actually, when I stepped out of that and I went to Lunch Life Kitchen, I just hoped that someone would, you know, retweet it or do one-to-one retweet or something. I was looking for very small help. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it got so big and so quickly Um you know, class after class, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And people forget that the power that, and the power responsibility that has then fallen on my shoulders from that. Because, I, you know, like I said, I wasn't, I'm not, you know, a scientist. I'm not um, a nutritionist. I'm, I'm just a cook who's lost his mother and trying to help some other people. And I think for me, I now also had to become the spokesperson for Life Kitchen, the person who does media interviews, the person who develops recipes and teaches it and does camera work and all of these other things. And what I find amazing in myself is that I've been able to do that so well. Um, but, but but there's so much more behind it, if you know what I mean. Like, I go home and sometimes, you know, I'm all, I've always been really frankly honest, and I, and I will be right now, sometimes I'll host a class and three days later, after being around 20 people living with cancer, I'll be crying on my sofa about it. And I think there is that that power in the pain and how I can just push it aside, stand up there, present a class with five TV cameras, 20 guests, and, and you know, and powerful stories. I mean, it's not like I just don't speak to my guests. Like, they tell me their life stories, how long they've been having treatment for. They tell me their ups and downs. And I'm so open to that. And I don't know if many other people could do that, carry the weight of so many people. I've had over 100 guests now. And I'm just, you know, carrying all of their stories. And then even so now, I'm so worried that people aren't getting the right treatment. I've got this amazing lady called Kate um, Northcott-Spall. She does cancer campaigning for access to cancer drugs. So she comes along to my my northern classes, makes sure everyone's on the right treatment. And actually between that, we found two people who weren't getting the right treatment. And she's now getting them treatment when they thought there was no possible other things that I've actually somehow expanded onto cancer um, drug advocate or just getting people the right treatment and that's not what I set out to do but you just realise more and more the more you learn about people you know it's less about me it's less about what I'm trying to do and it's more about how you know Lynn hasn't had the right cancer treatment for the last year or she's been denied access to this and I couldn't do that I couldn't help it but I found someone who could and I think when things just naturally progress in that way and you're doing good in the world by accident. I mean, could there really be a pure thing? That's an interesting philosophical question. <laughs> well, and it literally is a philosophical question about whether true altruism even exists. Um, but we can we can leave that one. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think it does. <laughs> Just saying. Um, like I said, I mean, I'm doing what I'm doing to heal myself from my mother and help in that way. And also because I just like other people. Uh, uh, one thing I did want to say was... Um, is I'm, I'm starting to get a sense of the responsibility of of Life Kitchen, um, and as a well, as a mental health professional, as a professional who's kind of been around a lot of people who take care of a lot of people, I'm just going to put it out there that you really need to make sure you're looking after yourself. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll try. Um, in fact, actually, quite a lot of my food writer friends, some who are quite well known, reach out to me all the time and say. Are you looking after yourself? Am I doing that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like tomorrow, actually, I'm no, Wednesday. I'm flying off to um, southwest France, and everyone's like, "Is it a holiday?" I'm like, actually, no. I'm going to visit a chateau, and we're going to put on a life kitchen retreat in the southwest of France, including a cookery class and meditation and yoga. Um, 
But I'm going to use the one day I'm there to just have a little swim in the pool and a little five minutes out. I, you know, I want to, I want to encourage you very strongly. I'll try. I'll try having hours swim. Okay. To start getting in the habit, simply because you know, certainly one of the things that because it was when you were talking about hearing people's st- stories and holding people's pain, and obviously as a psychologist, this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, I and there was a huge amount in our training about ensuring that you don't burn out. It's about leaving it at the door, isn't it? My friend works at a hospital and she quite often has to just leave everything that she's seen at the door. And I mean, it's not that simple, obviously. It's, it's kind of yes and no, but I think there's a, there's a wonderful... Sorry. <laughs> There's a wonderful writer called Eve Ensler, and she did a lot of work. She wrote the vagina monologues, the first one sets of those, um, but she was talking to a lot of women who had been through a lot of sexual trauma. And she speaks very beautifully about being able to process other people's emotions. And that is a taxing job and you need to be taking care of yourself in order to do that and I think I think you're right at the beginning of Life Kitchen and and it will be really important that you really think about how you take care of yourself because taking care of other people is a burden and even if you're doing it kind of at an angle or you know you're not their therapist but you're hearing people's stories you're being exposed to people's pain and you really really am getting very teacherly with you now i'm fine about that <laughs> i could do really, it so <laughs> you know you really need to start getting into the habits now of how you'll take care of yourself because especially now that you're really the linchpin of this whole thing if you burn out I, the whole thing does the whole thing does no i know and that and that's funny because i've always said it's not about me but i mean at the end of the day it, it is my organization by accident whether it happened by accident or not is is, is not really the point so i take what you're saying okay and i'll have at least a two-hour swim when i go to the shuttle <laughs> just do that for me <laughs> to be fair i mean at the weekends now i tend to not try not to do any work and i do end up just watching about 15 hours of netflix straight and then okay <laughs> It's a little bit of a story, restorative time, so... That's fine. We'll talk about this later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, the other thing that you touched on, and maybe this is completely irrelevant, but um, it's something that I have been thinking about more, is is the London bubble. You know, I'm a Londoner. I have lived... I was born and raised in the bubble. But I think we slightly... Londoners or people come into London lose track of the rest of the country if not the world and it becomes very much the people's republic of london <laughs> very much so and we we you know and certainly westminster has been accused and i think admitted to neglecting parts of the northeast and and the rest of the country and how we slightly very much even we really need to open our eyes to the fact that things are different elsewhere and kind of to be a bit less arrogant Mm -hmm. I think as Londoners 100% and the reason I'm going to open my first cookery school out of London is for that very reason I'm opening it in the northeast. It will be open to anyone across the country. People will travel. People have travelled for all my classes before. Someone from Vicarage flew from Belfast to come. And, you know, when we did um, Dalesford, someone drove 200 miles for that. So, like, I'm not scared about opening a cookery school outside of London where a lot of people would be. For me, I'm not a Londoner, although I do live here and love it. Um, But for me, there is another world out there, outside of the M25, as they say. That famous, famous line. I've heard of it, but I I can't be sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I spend a lot of my time there. My favourite time still, being outside of London, in the countryside, up in the northeast of Scotland, in in Manchester, in all of the other mystic places (laughs) that are outside of London. Um, 
and I just feel that there's a different attitude to so many things there and that's not being patronising on those places but you know we live in like I've seen for a microcosm of, of clash of cultures day after day we have new interesting things everything happens here first travels up the country months if not years later mm-hmm. and I think what I've been very careful of is that there's only been one life kitchen class in London so far the rest have been outside of I promised myself when I started this two things. I would keep it free and I would keep it accessible to everyone. So I purposely took it around the country and the best I could, you know, get in the cookery schools and finding the budgets and travel of uh, five or six people who can help wash up and all of these other things. Things don't come cheap. You know, we, we've raised £11,000, but we've spent a lot of money sure. because, you know, buying ingredients for five recipes for 24 people in a class is very expensive. Yeah. And then paying travels and hotels when you're taking people around the country has its own negatives to the positives and I think people really need to understand that from our point of view I mean I haven't earned any money I earned £7,000 this year personally I mean I live in London my rent is like far more than that God knows how I'm even alive <laughs> thanks dad thanks Oliver and yeah so what I'm trying to say is like outside what you're saying is there is a world outside of London I've purposely kept Life Kitchen available to everyone and what people are saying to me is you've created such a brand that is like quite luxury in itself but accessible to everyone and I find that a very strange concept and I think it's probably because if it was just a London centric brand it would look nice it would be in nice places Mm -hmm. and it would be accessible to people who have the money in London Mm -hmm. but actually what it is is a nice brand where we put things on in nice places we have we do nice food at it we put it on in nice places across the country but yet it's accessible to anyone and it has to be because when when we when we were living with my mother having cancer we had no money my my dad lost his job because he had to go to some of my mother's hospital appointments Mm -hmm. so they were constantly trying to get rid of him because he was off so much my mother had to take medical retirement we managed to pay off the mortgage thank god otherwise I'd probably not have to be here so there's always that point that we keep it free and if we take it around the country it gives people the chance to see what we're doing look at the latest research that we're doing experience the latest of um, the recipes that we're teaching and just have a good time people forget that Life Kitchen is actually just about a good cookery class where people can learn some things if nothing else it's a nice day out where you can meet some new friends and if you're living with cancer, it's quite an isolating time. Mm. So, yeah, it's my speech on outside of London for <laughs> Thank you very much. I think when what's clear when you talk um, is how much, though you are the face of it, or <laughs> narcissistic chief, as your <laughs> boyfriend would say, um, that it's very much a team effort. That actually, you have you're leaning on your boyfriend, you're leaning on your best friend, you're leaning on your dad, and my sister, both my sisters actually. Um, my sister Rachel, I sort of she recently um, left her job, and I've been calling her every day, like, could you just send this email for me? Could you just do this for me? And now she's the head of partnerships for Life Kitchen, so she's sort of become this other face and people have started saying oh you run it with your sister now because we're so often tweeting each other about things but yes like I think you're right I do I do quite often put across it is a team effort because it is um Although, if you ask my sister to teach a class, she wouldn't have a clue. Or, or my dad, Kimberly, could probably half manage it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's lovely to hear, but I think it's always important to reiterate that almost no success is ever 
done in isolation, that people succeed because people have helped them, people have believed in them. I succeed because people have come to the classes. You know, without them, what would I be teaching? You know, I succeed because, you know, people, Jamie lent us his cookery school and 24 people turned up and the kitchen porters helped clean up and Kim was prepping for success and Sue Perkins was cutting things and shopping. That's why we succeed. We succeed because Barry gives us time over to, to talk about the research and to figure out other ways to do things and, and that people who've donated have helped us get here. And we succeed because I've given up all hope of ever owning a nice shirt because <laughs> I can't afford it. Um, no, it's fair. I wear a lot of nice shirts. It's become my signature. I didn't wear a good one today. Sorry about that. It's all right. It's the radio. It doesn't matter. <laughs> to be fair, when I first went on Radio for Life Kitchen, it was the Today programme, and I turned down a car because I thought, it's like, should we send you a car? And I was like, no, I'm not ridiculous. Then the tube caught fire. And uh, it was a and I was trying to get to the radio. And I've just realised that you should always accept what people want to do for you. But my point was, I put on a nice shirt, did my hair, bought some new jeans to go on the radio. And we find that a lot, actually. People dress up to go on the radio. But not today. It was like 30, 30 degrees. It's very hot. And it's fine. I want you to be comfortable. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Ryan, is there anything that you would want to say to listeners or ask of the audience either for you personally or for Life Kitchen or anything else? Um, I would just like to say um, you know if, if you are living with cancer and you are struggling with food and enjoyment of food then you know see what Life Kitchen can do for you we, we've got some recipes online set like OFM and um, Daily Mail Rolls eyes um, and several other publications and stuff out there. Um, come along to a class, tweet me on Twitter. Um, you can always donate via GoFundMe.com slash Life Kitchen. I mean, we always need money. The, the bad thing about something like GoFundMe, although they've been incredibly supportive and, and really helpful, is the money always looks like it's going up. No one ever sees you spending it. So it's like 11, 12, 13,000. Mm-hmm. But actually, realistically, you've got four because you've been paying for things. So you know, if anyone wants to donate, it's gofundme.com slash Life Kitchen. If you want to follow us, it's at Ryan Riley on Twitter, at Life Kitchen on Twitter, at Life Kitchen underscore on Instagram, because couldn't get them the same, pains me to this day. And yeah, we've got classes across the country um, coming out, you know, follow us on Twitter, lifekitchen.co.uk. We've, we've got all of those things out there. But mostly that, you know, I think... I just want to get out the message that we're about food and flavour and enjoyment and you don't have to come to a class to learn those things, just experiment just use umami rich flavours um, use things like rose harissa um, use things like chilli and garlic there are several people who live with cancer you can't several groups of people because of the chemotherapy that makes their mouth sore so they can't use those things and I'm still working on ways to address those things but powerful flavours, citrus, garlic, chilli um, ginger, rose harissa which is made up of um, dried peppers and rose petals and fragrant things, think about these foods that are powerfully flavoured I've actually forgotten half of the Life Kitchen stuff when I'm sitting here talking and thinking you can, well you can send us a, a link and, start, and I can link that across to people yeah because there's, there's lots more, like, let me think through the dishes so umami must be like Parmesan. It's really baffled for a second. Parmesan, well, we use tomatoes, Parmesan. anchovies. Yeah, so, but, but part of what, what I mean is we also do a carbonara, which has become quite probably the most famous Life Kitchen dish. Because classically, it's not a very flavourful dish. And you would think, well, how's that going to you know, stimulate someone's palate who's got all the sense of eating? Well, actually, we, um, we sweat garlic, chilli and onions down with salt on the very lowest setting for about 30 minutes until they're completely melted. So you've got this sweet garlicky chilli base 
And then we do a very rich parmesan and egg yolk sauce, about 150 grams of grated parmesan into five eggs, and beat that together. Little bit of ladle of pasta water, and then we use um, and then we put that together, and we finish it with some frozen peas. Cook off the frozen peas in the residual heat, so you've got that crunch, that freshness. So you've got the umami from the parmesan and the bacon. Oh, sorry, there's bacon in there as well. Um, and then we finish it, and this is the key with mint. So this is what I want to talk about: the trigeminal nerve, the nerve between your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. It's the thing that burns when you have horseradish or mustard or toothpaste. And what is El wasabi? And what is toothpaste? It's menthol. And what is menthol? It's mint. So we've took those elements and put mint on the carbonara. So not only are we building the richer flavours in the sweating down of the onions, the garlic, and the chilli, we're building the umami-rich flavours with the um, bacon, with the parmesan, and the eggs, and then we're finishing it with the freshness of the peas and the brightness, and then we're topping it with chopped mint. So that's to give that stimulation, that nerve stimulation, alongside the layers of flavour. So there's a dish where you can get flavour from several different elements of and it's really quite interesting it actually tastes delicious as well everyone's always like mint on a carbonara no and I'm like no honestly it works and there's reasons so if you're not getting all of the flavours and you're getting the stimulation in the trigeminal nerve then you're getting something else from that dish something you haven't been getting from the food you've been eating and I think that is quite a key intrinsic part of what we're doing and I think something that shocks a lot of people but it's a really simple element and it's breaking down the science of it there and applying it to normal life like if I said you need to add trigeminal elements to your food you would be like sorry what? (laughs) if I say sprinkle a bit of mint with your carbonara you're like gotcha thank you so much for joining me today it's been fab thank you for having me I'll see you soon see you soon and that's it thanks again to Ryan for sharing his story with me and the very best of luck with helping patients to hold on to their enjoyment of food I'll be back soon with some more guests so I hope you'll join me then and that just leaves me to thank you very much for listening and until next time I wish you the very best of health catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.